leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us. Um, today, I want to take you through social networks, uh, social media, virtual communities, whatever it is you want to call them. I started working in online communities in 1989. Prior to that, I was a member of bulletin boards, and so I did a lot of work with, um, uh, I guess, um, forums and that sort of thing. Sorry, a bit, a bit phased. <laughs> There's a bit of a hum. Yeah, I'm trying to sort it out. Carry on. Yeah. Um, so although I'd belonged to bulletin boards before 1989, in 1989 I was a member of the Arnet Committee, which put together the Academic and Research Network Backbone. And what that effectively meant was to connect all the universities up with SMTP email, Usenet news groups, a bit like Facebook groups, and IRC chat channels, which is a little bit like Twitter today. And what I saw in 1989 blew my mind. It, I felt that this was going to be an evolutionary leap for humanity and that my life's calling would be there, but it's probably taken about another 20-odd years for it to get there. Um, And a lot of that had to do with the fact that I thought that the web in the 90s got hijacked by marketing people who just put up brochure websites and basically told people to sit there and passively read stuff. Before Before the web, it was all about interaction and people submitting content and rating content all this sort of stuff. So I was a virtual communities consultant, then I was an online communities strategist, then a, and also a virtual worlds consultant. Um, then I was a Web 2.0 and user-generated content consultant, which fit on my business card, believe it or not. And today I'm a social media person, and probably next week I'll be transmedia. <laughs> don't do it, don't go there. Um, the company that I run is the Community Crew, And we have teams of moderators and admins that look after online communities. And part of that is also to run workshops with organisations. So the community crew come in and they manage the Facebook page, the online community, as uh, a little bit, um, I guess, a dungeon master, uh, quest givers, but mostly they're the cops. A little bit of teaching. They wear many hats. I don't use marketing and PR people, I use teachers. And one of the reasons why I employ teachers is because I want them to be blue-carded to work with children, and in Australia our teachers have to be cleared to work with children online. So with Junior MasterChef, with Disney and, and companies like this, I just don't ever want the front page of the newspaper to say communicate a community crew, admin, court with kids online or anything like that. It's just I'm absolutely passionate about protecting children online. And one of the reasons for that is having worked in virtual worlds and when I get to that part about the games, the kids don't go to their parents when they're in trouble with cyberbullying or anything else. They don't go to their teachers. They go to their guild leader. They go to the other players in the game and they go to the admin and moderator of their forums as the authority figure in their life. So our days and our nights were full of kids saying that they were committing suicide or that they had problems at home or that they were being bullied. And um, we continually looking for resources to collect around that. It's just something to bear in mind. I teach at uh, the University of Sydney courses on building online communities and have done for quite a few years, since 2006. And almost everything I do online, I put up 
uh, online. So these slides themselves you'll be able to download later from slideshare.net if you are so inclined. So slideshare.net is the YouTube for PowerPoint presentations. A few less laughing babies and crying dogs on Slideshare, but lots and lots of um, PowerPoint presentations. I'm not going to do perhaps what some of the other speakers have done, which is take one or two case studies and go through them in depth. Um, I'd rather take my structure for building a community and then get, highlight examples of where we've used it and how it's worked and how it's not across multiple uh, channels and multiple communities. But this is a list of the clients that I've worked with, including NBC.net Middle East Broadcasting in Saudi Arabia in building an online community for Saudi women. Also with um, the Singapore military in building organisations across the whole of Singapore to use social media to reach Singaporeans about the importance of defence for their very small island state. Very different worlds, Middle East and Singapore, I can tell you. Almost everything that I do today is around this graph. Um, the reason why it's pretty is because Gary Hayes did it, not me. Again, I'm not very good with these sort of things. Remember that one? Um, no. On the left-hand side in 1990, Dr. Jacob Nielsen came up with the 99-1 rule, which said 90% of people will be passive online, 9% will be respondents, and 1% will be active contributors, creators and contributors. Um, he was right in 1990, and you'll hear this 99, bless you, you'll hear this 99-1 rule today, but it's wrong today. And I think what really happened was before 1990, before the internet really started to take off, we were 100% passive. Very few people got the opportunity to, to be a creator. Buying a a camera of any kind, a video camera of any kind of description was prohibitively expensive. Today, of course, they're built into phones. So the ability to be a creator early on was impossible. We watched television, we watched movies. Then we shifted into this 99-1 rule. By 2010, 26% of Australians were creating content online each month. So that's a big change. And that's from a Nielsen report, and it's really looking at the videos and photos that people are uploading to Facebook and Flickr and YouTube and that sort of thing. So it's not that we're, everybody's born to be passive or some people are born to be creators and others, most others are not. It's just getting used to putting stuff up online. And I think by 2020, it'll be completely the inverse. 90% of people will be creators. Very small percentage will just be commenting and liking things, and 1% um, will be solely reading. So I'm going to go through the eight or nine steps that I use to build an online community, and you can either download the slides or take notes, depending on what your pref personal preference is. But step number one always, always, always is about strategic vision, the purpose and the value systems. Why are you doing this? And a lot of the companies that I work with, and that includes Sony and Procter & Gamble and all sorts, they say basically say to sell more shit. Perhaps not exactly in those words, but that's really what they're getting at. So what I try to do is I try to break it down into this. Why are you doing this as a community host? Why are you wanting to build the community? And then what is your real reason for wanting to build the community? 
So one is a stated thing that you tell the general public, and one is the hidden reason for what you're doing. Is it for marketing intelligence? Is it to sell the database to sponsors? Is it to seed virtual goods and make a billion dollars a year like Zinger does? Is it, is, what, is, you know, what is the other reason, the one you don't tell customers or you don't tell members? And then what is the public reason for why you're doing it? For the community members, they'll tell you why they are interested in this project, but they won't tell you the real reason why they're really there. So maybe we should explore that a little bit further. One of the communities I looked after was EverQuest. Has anybody here ever played EverQuest? Cool. So I'm going to ask you, why did you play EverQuest? Why did I personally play? Yeah. And you, uh, because a friend was playing, you wanted to play with a friend? <coughs> a good friend? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Okay, so you're exploring worlds and that sort of thing. What about you? Same sort of reason was industry based, but it was that and you experience with a bunch of people and Okay. Community Okay. My experience of it was people were playing for sex. <laughs> Mostly cyber sex. And let me guess you guys never saw any of that. Never. Never. <laughs> And they went with a kind of highly sexualized images, which a lot of gaming sites and gaming products do. But always remembering that in the background of why people are playing games, and I think um, Second Life is quite strong with this as well, yeah? Yeah, a few people are laughing. Um, there's often an undercurrent of this sort of thing. In fact, there's a lot of in-jokes in these worlds about um, um, he's really a dude, mate, and all this kind of stuff. So they sort of recognize why people are involved in this. And I think the next one is the game that I probably administered maybe second, second most online uh, was Ultima Online. And anybody here play Ultima Online now that I've set you up for a fall? <laughs> Nobody's going to put their hand up. Okay, the reason why people play Ultima Online was the stuff. And if you look around the dragon, you'll see lots of piles of gold. I want to tell you now, one of the biggest issues we had with virtual worlds and communities online was getting the economies right. That balance of scarcity. In fact, um, there was more than one game where people were leaving gold lying on the ground because it had no value in the game. They could purchase nothing with it, and they needed 10 million or 100 million gold to purchase the most basic thing because inflation went through the roof. And if any of you know about Facebook and Facebook credits, you'll understand why Facebook are employing PhD people today in, in, in economics because they're planning on running the global economy through Facebook. And um, we might get to that at the end. But this whole idea of whenever people come together, they're trading items, virtual or other goods, and they are looking for stuff, uh, which leads me um, to the, the game that I was involved with the most and most closely related with the developers, which was Ashen Empires, and also named, known as Dransic. And most of the re reason why people played that game was around reputation and standing. So they were looking not only to develop their identity in the community, but they were looking for a way to develop their standing, the way that they would be seen in the eyes of others. And one way you do that is through the stuff that you wear. So if you've got the magic sword that there's only one on the server, or you're wearing the magic items, of which there's only 10 on the server, then you must be a really kick-ass dude in the game. Um, as a game moderator, we would... Um, these, these black characters, I don't know if you can see them very well, but they're actually our developers, 
um, based in Austin, Texas, and they would run around um, zapping lightning at the players just for the hell of it. Um, you get to do those sort of things if you have the community. And we had a great time with them. In fact, we broke the cardinal rule, which says you don't step over the wall into the community and mess with the community. In this particular community, we did, and they loved it. They loved being killed by the devs. What can I say? <laughs> bringing this sort of playfulness and these kind of ideas that there are hidden reasons why people join online communities, and even grandparents who are playing backgammon online Potentially, if they're single, could be playing it to meet members of the opposite sex. I know you don't want to go there in your own mind, but that is a reason why people join chess clubs and backgammon is for dating purposes. It's a hidden reason. So knowing those things helps you build a better community. Um, I worked with Westpac on the Ruby Connection, which is an online community for women here in Australia to connect business women, And they couldn't just to give you, I guess, some sort of a background, it was just to run events and to allow business women who run businesses to connect with each other. But they didn't have a unique selling point versus the other online communities, such as the Australian Business Women's Network and a few others. So I tried to take the Ruby Connection down some other paths, and one of them was to create vision boards where people could swap images and create mood boards or a vision of how they wanted to build their business and their life and work-life balance and that sort of thing in the future and put together quite did a lot of work looking into communities and how often they used words like, I wish, I'm visualising, I want to achieve. Um, and that was really a core issue or core hidden support that comes from women collecting online is telling each other what their deepest desires are and hoping that they can support each other in that. And it didn't go anywhere because the community was about getting loans to women who <laughs> connecting online. So I'm really wary now of making sure that I understand the upfront proposition and the hidden proposition. Does that make sense? Anyway. Point number two. Um, that we look at is once we understand the purpose is the spaces and tools, what can I, what can I do? And when I say I, I'm, looking, I'm now the community member. So I can sit here passively and look at stuff, but what can I do? What can I contribute to this site? Am I in passive mode or is there going to be a call to action for me to do something? And where you do that and how you pace that will change the nature of your community. And often we shift the front page from being static broadcast information. We try to pull in dynamic content from the community and the whole community shifts. They're now becoming contributors and creators um, because the front page is giving them recognition for their contributions to the site. So... When I look at the spaces and the tools, um, there's really obvious stuff. Forums, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, blogs, you know, where, am I, where are we going to play this out? Is it going to be a game? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? Ecosystem are where there are sites that are outside of my control. They're created by the members. So me as the host creates a certain number of destination hubs and spokes, and then outside of that is another group, and I'll show you more of that in a moment. The newbie area. When you front up in a game, and we had to put this into Ash and Empires, when you create a character, they should meet a non-player character immediately, which tells them there's a princess over there and she needs rescuing. You need to do this, this, and this to get there. Because 
the biggest barrier to entry of changing someone from being a visitor to the member of the community is that initial hurdle of, what do I do? Will I look like an idiot if I do it? And is there a ward in here for me? And I don't mean money, I mean status or just not looking like an idiot. Um, and lastly, a, a lot of the hidden spaces that the community don't know about. We had prison areas and moderator areas and all sorts of things in our virtual worlds and our forums as well, including our um, junior master chef areas. So the ecosystem for World of Warcraft looks like this, and it's the same with all the games that I worked with. I haven't worked with World of Warcraft, but this diagram, I think, gives a good idea. The core areas in the middle... And this was done in 2007, so you could add Facebook and Twitter in today. But the core areas, which are under the World of Warcraft umbrella, under Blizzard's umbrella, they have 10 million subscribers on their game. Attached to their game is a forum, which has an Alexa rating, um, uh, if you like, a, a web analytics rating of 291. But what was interesting to me was the non-Blizzard site over here on the left-hand side, ThoughtBot, which is a wiki which gives the answers to the quest like how to get to the princess over there, the cheats in other words, has exactly the same rating as the official site. So often the ecosystem can deliver more interest, more conversations than you can and that you have resources for on your official sites. So the hardest issue I have with large companies is get, having them understand that they can't go suing people who use their trademark logos on their blogs and their wikis and these other sites because they're passionate fans who will actually drive as much traffic, if not more, through the fan sites. Um, cartoon strips, graphic novels created by fans is a creative content area, as is Machinima, using the virtual worlds and mashing it up and creating videos from that. Uh, we did, um, or the, the, the members did a happy birthday to one of the devs using in-game choir, which turned really, really funny because they all got slaughtered by the other gang that came over the hill to kill them in the middle of the song. But the devs loved it because it, it was... Um, uh, a show of love to the, to the game and to the developers. Lots of blogs, YouTubes and flickers over here and at the bottom is the grey area which is, or has been the grey area in the past, which is the gold farming sites, the, the bits and bobs you may not want. The, um, in China the massive factories of people playing World of Warcraft to sell gold online on eBay to players who are looking for more gold. So be aware of the fact that anything you ban in-game becomes contraband, therefore gets taken out into the ecosystem. If you decide to allow people to spend $2.99 for 100 gold, suddenly the ecosystem, that part of the ecosystem is destroyed, you've brought it in under your own umbrella. So just be aware of that kind of balance between what you allow them to do and what they're going to do anyway. Bless their little con socks. And I guess this is an idea of how it works. You have this hub in the middle. It can be, in this case, um, WordPress and Blogger. This is for uh, people who blog, but, but using content spokes such as YouTube for videos, Flickr for photos, SlideShare for PowerPoint presentations, Script for others. Um, this is available up on Flickr as well if you want to have a look at it yourself or on SlideShare. The other side, so you've got content spokes, you've got a hub in the middle, a hub site in the middle, and on the, and on the um, other side, the distributor spokes are YouTube, LinkedIn, 
Facebook. You don't put a video on Facebook and expect it to get 14 million views in 48 hours. That's what YouTube's for. It's a content site. You use Facebook for your distribution. And I really emphasize this because there's often a temptation to take content and put it on the hub site without realizing that there's such a lot of foot traffic out on those spokes that could drive interest back towards your hub games and content here. So by putting something on, on YouTube and allowing it to be embedded means it moves on and out through the social networks. But if you keep it on your own site, it's tricky. It's just one of the challenges I have with large companies who try to put marketing and trademarking content in the same sentence and they just don't go. You're either marketing it or you're not. The third stage is the, in building a com community is the community member who's shifting between being a visitor and is now going to sign up is who am I? Who am I going to be in this network? And the first answer is they're going to be a newbie. So you have to put all, a whole lot of tools up for newbies. They have to have a special area where they can answer the stupid questions without having 10,000 other members say to them, that's a stupid question. So they have to have special areas that they can ask those things and feel safe and secure in doing it. Part of identity is there's probably about 12 roles that people in the community will play. Some are the cops. You can't do that. I'm dobbing on you. Some of them are teachers. Let me show you how to do that. Some are engineers. I've figured out that if you go to this part of the map and you jump up and down three times, then you can get into this area or whatever it is. Um, or they're looking at statistics. I've just done the statistics for being an ogre and I get like 50,000 more hits than if I'm something else. So they, these are natural roles that people play in the community. And one of them is the welcomer. Usually her name is Angel or Sunshine. And she skips in and goes, hi, you're new here. Let me help you with your stupid question. So the, <clears throat> she's, not, she's happy to say the same questions and answers over again. Sometimes it's a guy, but mostly it's Angel or Sunshine. One of the communities that I worked on talking about identity and who we are was um, Middle East Broadcasting's I Matter. When you came to the site, you were greeted with this very elegant woman who has the taha and the sunglasses on. But when you sign into the site, she changes, sorry about the graphic, um, into, into having her hair flowing and she's listening to music and she looks a lot more what we would consider in the West modern and, uh, I guess, with it. So the whole site changes depending whether you're logged in or not. And this was a big clue to the guys to back away. And they do. It's not, um, it's not cool. The guys, don't, the guys feel uncomfortable when they're in a women's space. When I was in Saudi Arabia, I went and sat down in a cafe and I was right on the border of where the men and the women sit. The men got up and walked out. So they're not there, you know, trying to encroach on the women's areas. They actually back away. And that has a lot to do with the rituals, and I'm going to go on to rituals, that communities hold. So if you develop, um, I think Lance called it a style guide. It's an etiquette guide. It's a ritual guide for the community. It becomes inherent and ingrained in the community, and they obey that. So if the community is supposed to kick the ass out of each other, that's what they do. But if they're meant to be welcoming and that sort of thing, then they change their behaviours to that. <clears throat> this is how members create their trust and reputation in a network. When they first join, 
their profile is very is empty. They don't put up an image of themselves. You don't want to put up an image of yourself. You don't know if you can trust this network or not. You don't put up your real birth date because that's what banks ask you for security reasons. You don't put up your home address because, you know, there could be stalkers out there. So there's a lot of information missing from the profiles. In fact, we put a lot of gamification in. Who hates the word gamification again? A couple of you? Okay, good. You'll get over it. <laughs> We put a lot of gamification in to get them to fill out their profile more as time goes on, as they feel more secure in the network. After they've been in, so they're doing active profile management at the beginning. As they, once they've been in the network for a while, they shift into passive, and they, their profile deepens through their choice of their avatar and image. So at the beginning, they might just show their eye or picture of a flower or, some, or a sword or something, and then eventually they might show their real image as time goes on. They have friends, groups, events, applications and widgets, whatever it is they're selecting and adding. So if you think back to when you first joined Facebook, you probably didn't put a lot of information up there, you probably didn't add a lot of people, and as time has gone on, you now belong to the I want to slap slow-moving people in the back of the head group. It's really popular in Australia. What about the, I want to ride, no, I don't ride a kangaroo to work in Australia. Do you ride a fat American in the USA? Five million, two million Americans, three million Australians are on that group. Can you see where I'm going with this? We don't always think about what we're revealing, our sense of humour. You have your mum on the phone going, why did you join that group? And you have the boss on the phone going, why did you join that group? Or maybe you joined the uh, Bring Back Kevin Rudd Facebook page, or you join the Bring Back um, Malcolm Turnbull Facebook page, whatever you just told your social network without realising it. And for the Americans, we don't debate politics very openly in Australia. We don't have the Republican versus Democrat thing very often. It's not part of our ritualistic greeting. Okay, so with the reputation... That's something that you've gained over time, over the tone and the quality of the content you submit, how helpful you are, whether you're snarky. Are you kidding? You've got to be janking, all that kind of stuff. The comments, the discussion, the roles you voluntarily undertake. And at the end of that, you get a trust quotient. And some people in your network will go out of their way to be the bad boys and the bad girls of the network. Just understand that. And if you put up a shame wall, people you're banning or you've given temporary bans to, some of the groups will work really hard for that reward. So you have to be careful how you reward bad behaviour. Does that make sense? It's like um, if you were the kid that gets to sit in the naughty corner the most times in class, woohoo, you're the badass kid. You've earned that title, and rightly so. So the last part, the trust quotient, if we don't like the fact that people don't trust us, we go back, we improve our content and our connections. So these are the sort of tools that community members are looking for, how they can build their identity and reputation within the game, within the forum, within the community space. If we have a look at Kevin Spacey online, let's see if this is going to work. Oh, yeah. How many people here are on Twitter, please? Really, most of you. How many people aren't here? Are, are, are not? Okay. <laughs> Let me just sum up Twitter for you in a couple of words. It's um, 
It's Facebook's. How, are you not on Facebook? No. You're not on Facebook. Okay. Are you guys? The rest of you are on Facebook. Okay. Cool. It's Facebook. Facebook status updates. Facebook status updates, but only Facebook status updates. You don't get all the widgets and the games and everything else. But it's also not a gated community, so it's not just you and your mates. It's a more broadcast community. So that's the key differences. If we have a look at Kevin Spacey's um, profile and his reputation perhaps within Twitter, what do you think the most interesting things on this page are? He's only following 10 people. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> so the fact that he's got over 2 million followers is less interesting to me than the 10 that he's following because who are those 10? Don't you want to know? You don't want to know. You don't want to know who Kevin Spacey thinks are the 10 most important people on Twitter to follow. Okay, cool. Is it possible that he is following producers, um, people who invest in movies, people who fund things? No? Why not? No, he's actually following those sort of people. Yep, he is. So one way to connect with people who are looking at investing and funding things is to find an influencer, somebody who's a leader in the community even if you don't like Twitter, and I can tell some of you don't, understand that within the community, an influencer collects a lot of people around them, but they don't communicate with every person on that list. They communicate with a smaller number. And that smaller number, they're either peering across or they're peering up because they're giving, um, they're expending social reputation on the people around them and upwards. And a few you know, local friends and, and uh, other people that they know. The other area that's of interest to me is the lists, because these are people who've gone out and collected a list, perhaps of um, one of the roles Kevin Spacey's playing on here is not as an actor, but as the leader of Trigger Street, which is probably um, the most um, advanced and well-run filmmakers online community. So he's actually using this to connect with Trigger Street people and, and funders and investors. So a lot of the lists that he's on is around filmmakers, finding scriptwriters, and connecting into the Trigger Street community. I'll leave you to go through those lists and figure out, but I wanted to find an influencer that perhaps for some of you uh, would connect as to why people do some of the things that they do online. And I think the interesting thing here is that... Um, just let me go back to here again. The interesting thing that happens here is that what goes on Twitter doesn't stay on Twitter, so it's not Vegas. <laughs> it ends up on blogs, on emails, on Facebook pages, on YouTube. Um, you can download the high-res of these from Flickr if you like. I'll give you the address afterwards. And it ripples, and it ripples out. But the core thing to remember is that the centre of each ripple is often the influencer. So there's Natalie Tran, the young... Um, Australian YouTuber who gets 38 million views sits there, she has a Twitter account, she has a blog, she has a YouTube account, and she ripples her content from YouTube from one network to the next as a primary influencer. 
if she tweets one of your videos or she connects to one of your ventures or she becomes involved with one of those, she moves masses of numbers of people around her and ripples them through networks. So often connecting with influencers, and influencers have become influencers by building their trust and reputation based on the content of the quality of the content that they submit, they're able to, in a sense, um, do a reciprocal relationship with you. But it has to be reciprocal. So we don't often uh, connect with people who are just starting out because there's that peering up and peering across idea that you don't um, necessarily give a hand up to your competition. <laughs> you have to have good, strong relationships with these people. But reciprocal relationships is how the net works. It's about everybody retweeting and reblogging and passing on the stuff from people before. What I, where I've put corporate blog in the top left-hand corner, that's really any content-based site that's about my stuff and is not connecting to your stuff. So a company that has a corporate blog that just talks about we the company but never ever connects into the ripple doesn't get the benefit of the ripple. So if you think about how you create your content, um, if it is just in broadcast mode, it won't get this um, benefit of building masses numbers um, this way. The, other, the only other thing I really want to point out, though, is that when you set out triggers, and we're going to talk about a conversation diary later on, the triggers take time, and it's the inverse of a traditional media campaign. So a traditional media campaign is more this shape. Let me just show you. Of me. <laughs> so you, ha you have what's called a short head of activity. You put a lot of money up front. It's an advertising campaign. It's a PR campaign. It's a whatever. It's on TV. It's been on the weekend newspaper, Monday and Tuesday. Lots and lots of interest. Book launch, people doing um, book tours, uh, film launches, people uh, talking on TV and doing... What do, you, what do you call them when they go traveling around talking about the movie? Junkets. Perfect. And at the end of the junket money, at the end of the PR money, the, traffic, the interest drops off, the thing eventually moves out of the cinema, and then it goes into what's called the long tail, T-A-I-L, which means it exists now on Amazon or iTunes or whatever, but the interest has dropped off. With social media, it's the inverse. You have to seed things into communities, recognizing that on day one, five people will know about it, and on day two, ten, and on day three, 100, or whatever the algorithm is that you're going to use. The cleverest social media campaigns often aren't social media campaigns around products and services and building community. They're usually mixed media. So if you know about the best job in the world, which was about asking people to create a, um, a video diary about why they should have a job as an island reef keeper. You know about that one? It's um, They did... The uh, British newspapers were all notified, so the Sunday Mail, so there's your short head of activity, your PR campaign, getting newspapers talking about it. As it comes into the long tail, it gets that uplift from social media, and now you've got a nice J-curve taking off. So doing a, um, you'll hear some social media people say, it's not really social media if it's not just community. And I think any communication channel that can tell your consumers your members, your whatever it is you want to call them, why they should be connecting, 
how they'll build identity, what the rewards are, all those things that we've just been talking about will help. And lastly, when you're thinking about influencers, um, these are the sort of people that I work with for large corporates and in games it would be slightly different. In games, maybe instead of award winners, I'd be looking at the top guild leaders. Um, the old-time elders are the people who've been playing the game for the longest and remember all the old myths before you change the game 10 million times. But almost all of these roles have been filtered by communities. How did politicians get to be politicians? What a hideous question. But it's because people voted for them. Stop voting for them. <laughs> just encourages them. That's an old joke. But the community votes for politicians, so the community filters the politician, they become a politician. Authors are filtered through the publishing system, then through the book reward system, you know, have you won a prize, and then they become the noted author. So there's all these filtering systems. Academics have to go through years of uni, and then they have to submit papers and all that kind of crap, and then eventually they're a noted academic. So the filtering systems that communities put in place will reveal the influences for you. And I probably should have added the bad boys on here because they're just as influential as the others, just not in the way you want them to be. The next step, the etiquette one, is how do I behave in this community? So at 9.05, you're on fark.com, F-A-R-K. Tell us what farked you off today. And then at 9.06, you're on essentialbaby.com.au. Your behaviour on those two communities will be totally different. Oh, God, I hope so. <laughs> Don't take your fark behaviour into essential baby. And so how do you manage the etiquette? How do you manage what are the social mores, the ethical situations, those kind of things within the organisation? I've found this very interesting because I've been working now with corporates about putting games, serious games, within the enterprise for staff. So we look at that word again, engaging users in desired behaviours by tapping into the psychological predispositions. This is the psychographics. This is the... the outline of the person that you want them to be in a sense or where they see themselves um, through achievement and reputation. From that they then understand that it's a meritocracy. The more they contribute, the more reputation they get. The less they contribute, the less reputation they get. Unfortunately a lot of organisations are hierarchical and you often wonder how the hell did that person get in that job? Well now it becomes transparent. Because if your systems internally give people badges and points for contributing to teamwork, then when they're made team leader or manager, everybody goes, oh yeah, well they got 110 points last month. So it becomes a very transparent, and it's not a case of, oh well, they're, they're friends with the boss. So you can sort of see that it's a meritocracy. And lastly, it becomes a recognition culture about how to recognise that people have done uh, an affected change that you're trying to to achieve. So these are really, in a sense, fundamental features of anything that you build where you're trying to get certain behaviours to occur. Um, this was Ashen Empires again. We built a jail that we put uh, players in and told them they had to stay there for a certain number of hours depending on what it was that they got up to. And we would place them in the jail and we would tell them, if you log out, you'll still be here when you log in. 
and we may not be around, so you'll be sitting here waiting for one of us to come and talk to you. You cannot get your character out of jail. Well, they couldn't, but they found ways of getting cows in their jail, which I still don't know to this day how they did it. So gaming this concept was important. And then the other thing that they figured out was how to get their friends to come and visit them. So suddenly, getting sent to jail was a cool thing to do. So they just drove a spare until we wiped the whole idea about a prison area, and we just removed them from the server so they physically could not log in for 60 hours and then that way we were able to solve naughtiness. But see what I mean by you have to be careful of the reward systems you put in place. So I've gone through um, purpose, tools and spaces. I put profiles, roles and leaders kind of in one block. Um, etiquette I think is another it, it, we've sort of just covered as well. The next stage is about campaigns. And there's a temptation to think of everything as being one hit. You've got to do this at one day or over this particular period of time. Uh, what we do is we build our campaigns throughout the community and we do it depending on what the community wants. So, um, for instance, we did very, very, very early um, types of podcasts in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, with, where they could meet with developers and ask them questions. We called it a House of Commons chat. And uh, that was a kind of an interesting area to go into because the reward for good behaviour was to have your question answered by the gods of the games. I think that a lot of companies today come to me and they say, we've got a social media campaign we want to do. We want to build a Facebook page. I'm like, you know what? That's kind of a tactic which isn't really a fully campaign, and it's certainly nowhere near a strategy. So let me give you two examples of how companies are making big errors in, errors in this area, and maybe you can figure out how not to do that in your particular area, even though you're not a big, big, big company. But Coles, ran a Coles, a Coles the supermarkets, ran a voucher campaign where they tweeted out a voucher every day for discounts. So they were on Twitter, they tweeted out the voucher, it went for about six months, they had thousands and thousands of fans, and then in August, two years ago, they tweeted, thanks for joining our campaign, it's now over, join us on the Coles account. To date, they have about 200 fans on the Coles account, and the voucher system, the voucher account is still sitting there with thousands of people who are still connected to it, but obviously not getting any information from it. So that's a really short-sighted way of seeing, um, but common. People want to try social media or they want to try building a community for six weeks. And I really think that campaigns work brilliantly when you have a community. And so you say, on week one we're going to do this, on week four we're going to do this, at the three-month mark we're going to do this, at the ten-month mark we're going to do this, at the four-year mark we're going to do this. And one of the classic things that happened to us is we had a really bored community who were niggling and fighting with each other. And we could sort of tell they were bored. They weren't creating stuff themselves, but they were just... They were like, they were like children that needed to smack them to be sent to bed. Who's here from the slap? Okay, I didn't say that. <laughs> I meant they needed a cuddle and to be sent to bed. Okay. <laughs> no, that scares me, that conversation on Twitter. Um, so this community was bored, so what we did was we ran an Olympics event where they had to start at the newbie area and they had to run well through the world and get to the top level area. 
and we had a starting, a starting area. We put game moderators across the course. If they died, they got respawned. Then they had to run again, and the people who got to the end of the Olympic run um, won. And we had to make sure they didn't cheat by having their friends teleport them and all sorts of stuff. Um, the second time we ran it, they made their own rule that it had to be run naked. So they took off all their magic armor and mage gear and crowns and wizard staffs. And the whole screen filled up with little naked butts running across the screen. It was the most hilarious thing I'd ever seen. And I, often, you know, and I thanked them for that because it reminded me that um, it should be this kind of collaborative thing where they create their world and they make their own fun and that we just have to seed some ideas to them and let them take it where they want to. And the Naked Olympics became an extremely important, um, important part of the ritual of this community. Um, in fact, they wanted them every week, but we wouldn't allow it. <laughs> So the, one of the action parts for you guys to do is to think about creating a conversation diary, to find your influences and list them, to list uh, rituals. I'm going to go on to rituals next. We've got two more slides to go. But to list the rituals of the group, I'll show you those. To list the platforms of them that you think would be useful to create actions. To note the responses, such as the nakedness of people. To put places, dates, and times together. There are certain things people want to do on Friday night, and then there are some that they want to do on Monday morning. Uh, to, put, to note some names of who's responsible for each one of those tasks next to the activity. So if you're going to say someone, I want you to go out and find all the influencers in cricket, cricket bloggers, cricket twitterers, cricket whatever, because we're making a cricket movie, it's a really obvious one, then you allocate that to somebody and you tell them what date and time to have that by. Um, and that will force you into understanding how soon you need to start building relationships with those influences. There's a whole ripple effect that happens from that. And finally, how are you going to measure this stuff? So let me do the last two things. One of them is rituals. The rituals are the hidden language of the group or the community. And it's not the sort of thing that we necessarily fully understand about our own community because we're so immersed in it that we don't always realize how we use rituals. As an example, the thank you and please. Not every country, not every language uses thank you as much as the British do. It's a very, um, very used word in England, less so in some other countries. Birthday, Christmas and Easter are also rituals. And if you play World of Warcraft, you would have seen that the whole of World of Warcraft changes at Christmas. They put up Christmas trees and they hang lights and they have a Santa Claus who's called Great Father Winter, Father Great Winter, whatever, Grandfather Winter, something like that. And he basically looks like Father Christmas. So recognising the rituals and building them into the group. Births, deaths and weddings take, take place in communities and also prepare for unexpected events like tsunamis and earthquakes which bring everybody flooding back into the forums. Um, for instance, with Junior MasterChef, with Biggest, um, Biggest Loser, we found even when they're out, out of season, when that 13 weeks is not running, then they would come on. They would all come back to that community to discuss um, a terrible event. 
So they're, um, they feel the need to get back and connect with their, their friends again online. Lots of sites change for Talk Like a Pirate Day. If you're on Facebook, it changes to Pirate Speak. If you're on Flickr, they fly the Jolly Roger. So does YouTube, so does Google. So there's a hat tip to Talk Like a Pirate Day. Have you heard of Talk Like a Pirate Day? Okay, go look at it on Wikipedia. It's just a, yeah, it's just a, a jokey thing. I think it happens in September, isn't it, for one day? The 19th. Okay. And then there's Movember as well. And if you've been to any of the airports, such as Sydney Airport, you'll notice that they have big moustaches hanging off of the airport itself. And Movember is there for uh, a charity event. If you're on Twitter, you've probably seen hash FF, which means follow Friday. <coughs> Excuse me. And follow Friday is where you recommend to your followers other followers to follow. You recommend to your followers who they should friend on Twitter, who's good quality. It's that peering across and peering up. I, give, I spend my social reputation in telling you who you should connect with. And if you end up on one of those lists, you can often pick up quite a few more followers because of that. And then there's hidden things like Leroy Jenkins in World of Warcraft, who was a guy that went running through a killer, a mad killer area. And it's not the sort of thing that anybody outside knows. You can go Google it if you want. It's just a hidden thing, a hidden hat tip within the community. But the players loved it when they showed up at the Blizzard conference and all the Blizzard employees had Blizzard on the front Leroy Jenkins on the back because it was an acknowledgement that they knew about this secret chat or this secret thing that happened only that only World of Warcraft people knew about. Um, follow Friday. I don't like this. This is where companies pick up on the ritual. So this is promoting um, a Kindle by using the hash FF Twitter tag so people will see it. But it has been retweeted. The, if it says 100 plus retweets... It could be anything from 1,000 to 10,000 retweets. You know, it's massive numbers of retweets. And it's that they're giving away Kindles. But they use the hash FF Follow Friday tag to do advertising. I'm not a fan of it, but clearly lots of people want free Kindles. Um, and uh, there's something called a Baron's Chat, which is a chat channel within the game where people talk about do Chuck Norris jokes. You kind of have to be there for some of these. And that's the whole point of them, you know? Anyway, um, World of Warcraft recognised it and did a TV spot using Chuck Norris, but using um, player characters to, to reference that. The last part I want to go to is that people break into swarms or sub-communities. And it becomes much easier to sign up sub-communities than it does to sign up every single person. So ninja or pirate, what side are you on? Uh, in World of Warcraft, it's alliance or horde. This idea that groups split around an issue. And if I was to make a really obvious example, if I wanted to sign all you guys up to one of my programs, I thought it was relevant for you, I wouldn't be talking to you here today, I'd go talk to Gary or Mike as influencers and then ask them to give a word-of-mouth referral for what I'm doing to you. And then when they're doing that, I'm off talking to somebody else, asking them to sign up that group. So that I don't have to sign up each individual person, I just have to sign up one of these guys. And then they do 
the signing up part. And I'm, this is how we work when we're building communities. We find out what are the relevant groups, what content do we have to create for the relevant groups, what communications do we need to do for the relevant groups, and then we have to find the influencers and the leaders in those groups so they go sign those groups up. No way am I going to sign up each individual person for any of the things that I do. So, um, and that's really what I'm saying here, one by one or group. Do I go out and find netball players and take out ads for netball players and try and find people on Facebook that state that they like netball and then try and sign them up all one by one? Or do I go to the Netball Association and ask them to do it for me? Do I, go, do I ask Screen Australia to do an email? Or do I go find videographers of people who make movies? And if I want to find cooks and people who like cooking, I go find the top cooking bloggers. In Australia, they deliver about three quarters of a million to a million views for each of their blog posts. And I find 10 or 15 of those, and suddenly they're signing up lots of people for me for cooking TV show or whatever it is I'm trying to do. Um, the critical masses will fork. If you do not give them an ability to sub, to swarm down into guilds, into groups, into, into I'm this, I'm not that, they will fork themselves. If I was to give you an example, if I build an online, coming right back to that very first slide about purpose and value systems, if I build an online community which is the purpose is about um, Harley Davidson, you guys are all members of my online community looking to talk and trade Harley Davidsons, whatever they're called in plural. Perhaps half of you, you guys, yep, you, you're rootin', tootin', hog-riding, tattooed, moonshine-swilling, born-again Christian <laughs> hog-riders, okay? You are lawyers and doctors with more dollars than cents. You're going through a midlife crisis. You've just left the wife with seven kids to take off with the 18-year-old secretary. Good on you. You thought a Harley-Davidson would just change your life. The two groups on the same forum are going to have very different experiences and different ways of communicating with each other because the value systems are different even though the purpose is the same. Be aware of that and give them separate areas to work in. On Australian Idol, we had big issues with um, one of the contestants. The gay crowd thought that he belonged to them and then the, the teenage girls claimed him for themselves as well and World War III broke out on the forums as they tried to fight it out who owned him. Um, by giving them separate forums they were able to take the conversation into separate areas and the girls put up boys keep out signs all over their forum. Um, finally, yeah, we just finish this up when we do the exercise um, and I know uh, I, I, I don't want to preempt what, um, what Jennifer's doing tomorrow but I, I do want to talk just a little bit about monetizing social networks and how it works in the bottom left hand corner this is where members pay you they pay you through donations such as the age of stupid raising several million dollars for their film they pay um, through expansions and upgrades so if you look at perhaps Kickstarter, Possible, Indiegogo, um, those kind of funding sites through joining fees through freemium. But if you pay a premium, you get additional content. All this kind of thing sits in the bottom left-hand corner. The right-hand side is where commercial clients, people who are not part of the community but external, want to come in and they want marketing intelligence, they want to offer sponsorship, 
and different things like that. So with Junior MasterChef, we get about 16,000 comments during an ad break. Um, we have to manage that and manage the conversations. We write reports, and one of the reports that we wrote showed that the members were talking about how do the kids cut vegetables without cutting themselves? The children. And by reporting that back, um, Channel 10 found a company that makes special utensils for kids, like when you know it, and the next thing I know, they're being spotlight sponsors of the show and of the forum and different things like that. And the community go, oh, that's who it is. And then they tweet it and they Facebook it and they link to the company and they're all answering each other's questions. So it's not advertising to them, it's useful information. In the top left-hand corner, it's where members trade with other members. So there is a clip of the social economy. And if you think of the eBay um, system where a member sells something, a member buys it, eBay takes a percentage of that. You understand what I mean by allowing members to trade amongst themselves. So World of Warcraft misses out on that grey gold area because it's taking, it's taking a, um, place online on eBay because they haven't put a platform in place to trap and capture a clip of the trade where people are buying and selling gold amongst themselves. It's just um, a revenue stream to think of. The very last one is where commercial clients deal directly with the members and you as a host don't get any of the money. <laughs> Most hosts don't like that one. Facebook has been suffering from that um, terribly because these sort of things are starting to come in now. Disney allow you to purchase tickets um, to the cinema directly on Facebook and you pay through a pop-up window using something called open APIs and if Facebook are not smart, they won't capture a clip of the revenue here. Disney will deal directly with the member and Facebook won't get any of that money. That's not going to occur for long because if you think about iTunes taking 30%, if you think about... Um, who else takes a clip? Android, yeah. Um, and how this one works is you will see in your newsfeed, Laurel Papworth is going to see Club Penguin at 5pm tonight at Hoyt Cinema in George Street in Sydney. Like, share, comment, buy. And when you click buy, you get a pop-up window, you buy the ticket, and now it shows all your friends. Two of your friends are going to see Club Penguin at 5pm tonight at blah, 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 blah. Like, share, buy. And the next thing you know, you've got 20 of your friends are coming to see the movie tonight at the same session. Tip number one, get rid of your stalker ex. I know you feel sorry for them, you're going to stay Facebook friends, but you don't want them showing up at 5pm tonight when you go to see the cinema. Um, okay, that's a joke. Not a very funny one, but there you go. Um, but this whole idea that you can do transactions, Facebook becomes a transaction platform, Facebook's bringing out its own currency now, is I think going to be an interesting shift in the future when you look at monetizing social networks. Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us.